This is the Ben Ryan Podcast. As a cricketer, Jeremy Snape achieved international honours with England, as well as captaining county side Leicestershire. But it's perhaps for his work on the mental side of sport, working in the world of performance, that he's best known these days. Post-playing career, Jeremy founded Sporting Edge, a company specialising in inspiring individuals, leaders and teams to deliver their best. And this was the crux of the conversation when we met. Jeremy was great company and his wealth of experience energised the conversation. We had a fascinating chat covering so many topics within performance, narrowing in on the mental side through to the performance of teams, athletes and managing mavericks. But we started by talking about selflessness and as the perfect example, a group called the Rivonia Eight, the name given to those that were sentenced alongside Nelson Mandela to serve a large part of their lives in prison on Robin Island. Yeah, it was incredible. And I think, you know, obviously a background in sport opens up so many weird and wonderful relationships around the world. And The chance to work with the South African cricket team was a privilege in itself from about 2008 to about 2011-12. But then as one of the elements of trying to build more awareness around resilience and purpose in the actual team, we set up a number of workshops and brought some experts in. And one of them was Ahmed Katrada, who was part of the Rivonia 8. So this was the ANC board level group if you like that were busted out in a farm in uh, just north of Johannesburg and basically trialed the Rivonia trial and the lawyer said that Ahmed Katrada there was nothing on him he didn't really need to go to prison with Nelson Mandela but he decided as did a few of the others that they would stand by their leader and they did so did so fully knowing that, um, you know, the, the, there was life imprisonment as, as a result. So they spent, um, I think it was 26 years in prison alongside Nelson Mandela. And, you know, just the story of sacrifice, of discipline, of solidarity, of optimism. One of my favourite parts of the interview, I actually, you know, we interviewed Ahmed Katrada as part of that South African project but then I caught up with him and Dennis Goldberg in London a few years ago actually before they died they both passed away recently so very privileged to have that Mm. content you know Mm. from both Um, but Ahmed Katrada spoke about the you know the the prison off Cape Town Robin Island that we know so well from Nelson Mandela's books and stories but there was the wet concrete as they went on to Uh, I think it was called Penguin Walk. It was like the jetty that was going up to the prison. And one of the prisoners had inscribed, you know, ANC will win 1970 or whatever it was. And 20 odd years later, this same inmate, after all the isolation and, and pressures that they'd faced, walked past that now set concrete that had been battered by the waves like they'd been battered inside, you know, emotionally. And the ANC did win and they overthrew not only the apartheid era in their own country, but obviously transformed, you know, society as a result. Yeah. And you, you talked about Dennis Goldberg there. And one of the things that sentences that, that struck me was talking about commitment. And when you commit to something, don't commit wildly, as in think about it. And then he had obviously thought very hard about the decision he was going to make 
that was ultimately he he was sacrificing his life. He talked about the sacrifice of the greater good and then referred to, um, I think I get the pronunciation right, Ubuntu. Do you mind just telling the listeners a little bit about that and, and how that kind of resonated with you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Dennis Goldberg, again, was was his story was incredibly compelling. And, you know, that selflessness. And he said, you know, that really you should judge your life you know, as a, as a service to others and, and that it can't be about the individual having success. We are human because of others and, and that's sort of a, an interrelationship that's the key. But that, that philosophy of Ubuntu is one of these timeless wisdoms that I just think is so powerful and actually so relevant for us to connect to. We actually used it as part of the South African cricket team, the Pro Tears. We used it as an anchor in their performance culture, actually, because... Um, the Swahili philosophy Ubuntu talks to you know you can't judge your success in life by your car or your house or your business card the only way you can really judge your success in life is by the impact you have on other people's lives and I think that's so profound and I think we've lost that somewhere down the line you know we've got so busy proving ourselves to others or trying to be better than everyone else or trying to earn more than everybody else or get more badges that Actually, we, we're sort of hardwired to form communities and, and communities by definition need selfless acts and a, and a wider purpose. So I think being able to connect the South African cricket team, the pro tiers to that wider purpose of inspiring the nation because they had seven different cultures in that team. You know, this wasn't, um, you know, an Afrikaans team or, or a, a sort of causa team or, or whatever. It was a truly representative of the rainbow nation. So when they got to number one in the world rankings and then slipped back down, it was almost like they'd achieved their goal in terms of performance. You know, which coach doesn't want their team to be number one in the world or to be, you know, the the highest ranking, get to number one. But that's not enough. These extrinsic goals and these comparators that we put against each other to say, I want to be better than them and I want to get to number one. That's fine until you get there, you know, and, and, and actually... We need something deeper and, and more emotionally engaging to sustain the sacrifice that's needed for high performance. So in the performance setting of the Proteas, that philosophy of Ubuntu was brought to life in a local school with one of the camps where we got some of the young 10 and 11 year old cricketers to talk to the Proteas that we'd sort of smuggled in privately into one of the classrooms. Um, and these boys stood at the front of the class with eyes like uh, dinner plates looking at you know A.B. de Villiers and Dale Steyn in their little yellow and blue seats with all the zebras and lions on the walls and um, you know they said we'd like to give you a lesson in Ubuntu and the players were sort of wide-eyed as well and they said that you know you're the role models for the way we live our lives and and when you respect the umpire in a foreign land for a bad decision that makes us respect our teacher and when you huddle together on the world stage you know as seven different cultures on the pitch and you're proud to be South African that lets us play with people in the playground so don't think this is just about your career this is about you know the, the sort of path that you lead for us and it's incredibly powerful and I think that philosophy of Ubuntu I've seen it transform the South African cricket team and and certainly a few years later when I met Dennis Goldberg again and he spoke about Ubuntu being a guiding force for him you know that selflessness of going to prison for that length of time you know there are all sorts of bribes and and you know the the sort of prison guards would say 
your daughter's getting married. We've got some pictures. Would you like to see them? But you need to tell us what Nelson Mandela's saying or whatever. And they stood completely firm to, to all sorts of manipulation. And I think that people talk about high performing teams and we look at Brazil or the, you know, Chicago Bulls. But I mean, if there's a high performing team, it's that group of eight people who endured that isolation for 26 years and, and transformed society. So, you know, when Dennis Goldberg talks about Ubuntu, you know, you can see that he's lived it. And I think that's incredibly powerful. They stuck to their purpose and their collective goal. The second um, podcast that I listened to in, in tandem with the um, with the South African guys was the one around Mavericks. And um, and I, it was a complete coincidence that I that I'd put those two together and but it just thought it was a lovely juxtaposition of total extremes dealing with individuals that just want to be an individual in the team, don't see the greater good. And then the conversations you were having with those, those guys that had been in prison doing very selfless things. Do you see that disconnect with the sports teams and how would you go about trying to make them understand it? Well, it's an interesting um, question and an area. I think so much of sport is financial and outcome driven, isn't it? So we get... You know, the, the way we reward people in our, you know, organisations, in our businesses, in our sports teams, in our societies, that tells us a lot about how people are going to behave then. You know, if if there are millions of pounds at stake for one win this Saturday, then you can pretty much know that everything else is going to go out of the window and we're going to win at all costs. So it brings a certain behaviour with it. And I guess through the pandemic, we're almost reviewing our definition of success, I think, you know, we've heard some sporting organisations, there's clearly some iconic athletes in the past, like Lance Armstrong, where they manipulated the the sort of conditions to win at all costs. We've seen it in the city with fixing the LIBOR rates or fixing the emission rates in, in sort of diesel engines and things. It's about a personal short-term bonus mm-hmm. or a personal short-term reward of being top of the rankings. And actually, you know, not only does it compromise the reputation long term, but it also has a negative impact on other people. So I think that ability for teams to balance that definition of success, which is a bit more holistic, a bit more um, collaborative, is a strange one. But I think that's the area we're moving into. I don't think anyone wants to know that, you know, their kids have joined an academy. They've been absolutely smashed to pieces physically and emotionally and they come out as train wrecks the other side uh, yet one in a hundred goes on to be the best in the world and have you know have a film made about them I think there's almost a duty of care about how we look after our performers and I think that's all part of this you know winning culture that we've we've got to sort of rethink but you know certainly you know we also can't be too soft we've got to build really competitive environments and we've got to push people to their limits to achieve high performance. So I think having, you know, been an international cricketer, having coached in some international environments like England rugby, uh, Premier League football, and and, um, as you said, international cricket, you know, you get to see the bleeding edge of performance and and you've got to be pushed out of your comfort zone continually. So I don't think it's necessarily a comfortable place, but um, I think we're redefining that uh, success at the moment i talk a lot about creating the right environment where inside it everybody is feeling they've got a safe place where they can they can be themselves and talk honestly and openly 
but then there's also non-negotiables. So, uh, you know, there might be a, some, something as simple as getting to, to a training on time, something that I didn't do for this, this podcast. I was 25 minutes late and put in the wrong GPS. But that would be your guardrails. And I heard you talking to um, Baroness, I think it's Baroness Sue Campbell. Um, and she was talking about the, she, she effectively was saying, you know, that don't protect someone from the consequences of their actions, you know, have a hard line. I'm a big believer that you've got to get those that those guardrails at the right length because if they're too tight then those you're not going to feel you've got that control when you go into new organizations or even when you're a a captain at Leicestershire or playing one day international cricket how did you see those guardrails were was everybody part of that was there a collaboration on on erecting those guardrails or did it come from on high or well I think you know going back many a year you know the 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 teams and the leadership style was much more autocratic. You know, Mm -hmm. this is how we're going to play. This is your role. Stick your kit on and go and deliver it. And if you don't deliver it, we'll get somebody else that can. Do you react well to that as a player? Uh, Not particularly. No, I don't think so. I had enough negative voices in my head, you know, that I didn't need other people um, turning the volume up on them. So I think, you know, balance of support and challenge is absolutely key. Um, I think it works best when people have a, a sort of an emotional um investment in the dreamy higher lands that we're going to go to as a team this is the goal we're setting this is our aspiration and also you know a a sort of a a tactical contribution to how you're going to go about it I think that's when it works at its best my my personal experience is that you know a lot of these rules and a lot of dealing with conflict is actually managed far too late in the process and I speak honestly about myself running a business or whatever you would generally get into high emotional stakes when we when it's sort of too da- too far down the timeline I think the best leaders that I've seen and when I've done well myself as a captain is when you set the tone early and then you use that early you sort of go upstream and set the, the expectations and then you've got lots of time and examples to use as reference points against it so for example um when I took over the captaincy at Leicestershire, I'd, I'd been playing for, you know, 15, 16 years as a pro. So I'd seen plenty of pre-season flip charts, uh, not all of which, you know, delivered, I have to say. But I did something a bit different, which was go to each of the players' houses, which I thought was an important step, first of all, and chat to them about how they wanted to be dropped. Now, this is in sort of February, March, when everyone's physically fit. None of the partners have fallen out yet. There's no selection issues. You know, mm. everyone's absolutely fizzing and optimistic and the best of mates. And the cap, the new captain's rocking up and saying, how do you want to be dropped? It's a bit strange. But actually what that did is it gave me permission in that low stakes environment to then hold them accountable to that later on in the year when everyone was fatigued, there was conflict, you know, there was selection issues, all sorts of politics going on that, that happens as part of a normal professional season. So I could then go to a player in June and say, remember that chat we had in February about you saying if your form dropped, you would always want one game's notice or you'd always want me to pull you outside in the corridor before I told the team publicly, well, this is that chat. You've got one game left or, you know, we're about to discuss your place in the team this afternoon and it's not great. And there was no place to go from that because that had been discussed in the calm light of day. It was a sort of partnership between me and them that was their accountability and, and that was a decision that was made. So I think if we try and set those 
rules early on or set those expectations early on, then it allows you to use all the different examples down the line to to reinforce it. Yeah, if we go back to that decision that you had made as a captain to have those conversations and to start to ask those questions and do it at the right time, where did that come from? Yeah, I think if you told your 12th man as many times as I'd been told, you get a pretty good uh, spectrum of, of approaches. Mm. So I'd seen the good, the bad and the very ugly and, and thought that was a, you know, a different way of doing it. And, you know, again, to, to tackle it head on and have that conversation and get a sense for what those people needed, you know, that, that was really important for me. But the other way of, I, I tend to look at things from sort of a psychological and emotional point of view. And I think there are certain touch points in the timeline of somebody's career or the timeline through somebody's season. And and those are real emotional opportunities for coaches, but also emotional flashpoints if you get them wrong. So for example, I've had two um, top international sports people call me, uh, you know, over this summer and, and talk about the way they're you know, their, their contract renewal has been handled, you know, that they've not been offered a, a new contract. And that's a classic moment for a senior player to get it wrong because, you know, you've got, you've got an iconic player that's been big part of the club for the last however many years, now walking around really disgruntled about the club that's, you know, been a huge part of their lives. But, and that happened to me to an extent, I think, you know, I managed to negotiate that actually I hadn't played my last game for Leicestershire. Uh, I wanted one more game so that I could invite my family because a, a quite an abrupt decision had been made, you know, that that was me done in the middle of my testimonial year, which was uh, not brilliant. Um, so again, I think you have these moments. It may be induction. It may be the first time somebody pulls on the jumper or the cap. What, what's that moment look like? Uh, we work quite hard with the South African team to make that a really authentic and engaging rite of passage, if you like, because it is, it's such a, a critical part of somebody's career. Do you feel like you belong? Do you feel like you deserve to be there? Do you feel like you can be yourself? Do you feel like you're respected? Or do you feel like you're on edge and you've got to prove yourself and you're not good enough to be there? That's critical to give somebody a fast start. You know, these selection and deselections. What happens when somebody's injured? Do you tell them to, you know, rehab their cruciate ligaments for six weeks and we'll see you when you're useful to us again? Or are the players actually going into hospital and seeing their teammate? Are they bringing them back to games? Are they part of the family? You know, once a, an all black, always an all black kind mm. of thing. You know, are you actually part of the family or not? Are you just a performance tool? That That's an interesting one. And then again, that whole life cycle at the back end of somebody's career. You know, if you create you know, proud ambassadors for the club or the country or whatever it is for that team. They're your best, you know, recruitment engine for new players. They're your best role models. They could be so valuable to reinvest in the future of the talent pipeline. But very often clubs get that wrong because the conversation is a very difficult one. It's driven by finance and there's high stakes and it's not been tackled properly. And you know, all of those things shouldn't come as a surprise to senior players, but because it's a difficult conversation, it gets avoided and then it ends up blowing up at the back end. It's interesting. And just while you were talking about that, for me, I'm just seeing that as the kind of organisation's entry and exit points, I suppose. And and have you seen any good entries? Uh, you mentioned the South African team, but any others where the inductions have been done well? I, I struggled when I think I got asked this question 
um, thinking about all the different places I've worked at. And I could only think of one when I was at Cambridge University. We got a kind of origin story from old professors and people about the history of the university and what the varsity match, where it sat and all of those things. And you really felt invested and um, valued it. Everywhere else I've been in, I can't remember an induction process that was a that was anything more than the administration. You know, if this is where your office is, this is where the training pitch is, and uh, you know, good luck. And, and have you seen good and bad? And I guess the second part to that is how important is that induction process? Yeah, I think there's. You know, I've done workshops with um, alpha male sort of sporting cultures where they say, you know, the young players get to the front of the bus, you know, the the big guns sit at the back. If you come to the back, you get a dead arm and, you know, that's part of the culture, clean the boots and we'll let you know when you're part of the team. And and that's the way those coaches were brought up themselves in the, in mm. the old era, but that's not necessarily going to give people a, you know, a fast start in their career. So I suppose the competitive advantage is how quickly can our young players integrate into our team versus the young players of the opponent's. Because if everyone's just starving their, you know, youngsters of that sense of belonging and, and being part of it and, and confidence, then we're all on a level playing field. But if actually we can make ours feel, you know, like they're playing in the Colts or like they're playing in the under-21s, but they're actually playing in the first team live on TV, if they can express themselves and know they're respected in the first game, they could catch a few teams out because no one's seen them and they could get man of the match. So... I think there's a competitive advantage in it. I think there's symbolism there. I think, you know, the cap, the the sort of lineage, the the player numbers, I think that's a brilliant addition. I think, you know, England cricket do that well with an iconic player presenting, you know, the cap and a little story to the new player. I think that's fantastic. And I think we also want to know who are you? You know, you, we talk about our family. You're joining our family. Well, who are you, you know? Where did you grow up? What was your family like? How did you get into cricket or rugby or whichever sport it is? Tell us a little bit about yourself as a person rather than just the performer that we see. And I think it's that comfort knowing that your skills are at the level. That's one thing. But it's another thing completely to know that you are respected and accepted as an individual, you know, for your the colour of your skin, your sexual preference, you know, your family heritage, your personality traits. You know, we talk about diversity in so many different lenses that if you feel like you're truly accepted and you're not one of the out group, you know, you're in the team, but you're not in in the team. You, you're just in the mm. same squad as us and in the same tracks and on the same bus, but you're not really in the team. And I think that can be, you know, an incredibly draining place for people to be if they're on the same bus but not feeling part of the circle if you like how would you go about then if you go into an organization where you're seeing those those pockets you're seeing senior players and junior players you're not seeing an induction process particularly um they don't see a connection between that and not winning enough games what would be your first steps well i think we can all say oh look at the chicago bulls what they do you know there's all these wonderful team analogies but you know, I often think one of the strongest coaching anchors is to go back to an individual and say, what was your experience like? Because you can put up a, you know, some kind of case study of a world-class Formula One team mm. or whatever. And then there's always that, oh, they've got the money or they've got such and such. It's easy for them. But actually we can all relate emotionally to the fact that we've been in a coaching team. I've been in coaching teams where I didn't feel part of it. I'm so nervous about the kit that I'm wearing 
because they've got a travel kit, a gym kit, a training kit, a media kit, all the different stuff. I'm thinking, shit, what am I wearing here? You know, and I'm more nervous about that than what I'm supposed to be doing in my day because of the atmosphere and I feel like the outsider coming in. So I think what you try and do is go back to the senior players and coaches and say, tell us your bad experiences and good experiences. So they've got a, a reference point. And then I think it's about leading from the front because, again, don't say you're inclusive if, if you're not. You know, let's make sure that we're having, you know, when we have these tables looking at strategy, let's make sure the young players are mixed with the old players. One of the things I used to do with the Rajasthan Royals in the Indian Premier League was uh, I got a great relationship with the manager and the IPL is so frenetic, you know, you're playing every three days, flying on a sort of two or three hour flight around India. And I used to get hold of the the flight lists and change the seating plans because I knew he's just fallen out with him. He needs to speak with him. This young batsman's a bit scared of fast bowling. This guy's a great player of fast bowler from South Africa. Let's get them together for three hours. And then I'd just nudge the various people to kickstart a conversation mid-flight, you know, and... There's lots of things you can do if your radar's up for it, I think. But obviously our radar is on who's going to score the goals, who's going to get the wickets. And we tend not to think about that sort of social chemistry and the emotional uh, environment that we're creating as well. If we're talking about high level sport where fine margins for winning and losing, why do you think people's radar is sometimes not up around that, that they don't value perhaps the relationships within the teams as greatly as they should. And they, or maybe they don't even connect that, you know, they don't have to get on with each other. They don't have, you know, you don't have to know about someone's family background. Some coaches do feel like that and some do get success, but certainly in the short term. Why do you think people don't see that connection? Is that, have you, have you come across that? Well, I think again, it's tradition. I don't think, you know, 20 years ago when those coaches were playing, it wasn't emphasized. So you sort of tend to, rinse and repeat. I think there's a much bigger emphasis on psychology and, and culture now than there has ever been because it's starting to be more visible and there are more tangible touch points. Mm. You know, for me, I've spoken about this a lot, that I think there was a decade of fitness where I remember military guys coming into coaches in cricket and we were doing squat thrusts and you know, all these weird and wonderful exercises to get our body fats down. Then the next decade was stick this bit of electronics on you so we can see how far you're running, what your heart rate is, and that, all that analytics. And then we've got all the Hawkeye and the technology there looking at strategy. But then the last thing you can measure is mindset and culture, and that's why it's harder to study, and that's why it's harder to articulate, and that's why it's harder to bring to the surface. You know, if I think about you know, some of the team environments that I've been involved with, uh, you know, on the psychology side, there may, may be in various sports, there may be three to 10 backroom staff that are involved in the physical preparation of the athletes. You may have, you know, two or three masseurs, medical doctor, physiotherapists, strength and conditioning, the analysts as well. And then you might have a part-time psychologist or somebody that, that comes in a few days a week to camp. So whose job is that? You know, if the sort of headlights are on the physical component or the tactical or the technical component of sport, and you've got one person coming occasionally to look at the mindset stuff, really, if it's not part of the weekly rhythm of the sport, then people are hardly notice it to have that conversation anyway. It's almost there as a remedial measure, you know, 
we're going to push really hard this week. We're playing against X. You know, here's your eye test, your fitness test, your diet plan, your strength and conditioning. We're playing against this opposition. So here's your strategy presentations. And if anyone's going to have a nervous breakdown, there's a bloke over there by the coffee machine. You know, he's in a white coat. It's that kind of thing. And I think we're moving into a completely different era. And my sense is that in five to 10 years time, we'll have as many people on the psychological and cultural side as we've got on the the physical and the technical side. You know, we may have a psychologist that is specifically focused on batting and bowling or penalties or goal kicking in rugby. We may have a psychologist that's more of a uh, sort of a, a a life coach, you know, that kind of executive coach kind of role. We may have a a coach educator for the coaching group to look at the psychology of coaching. We may have a rehab specialist that is helping the psychological rehabilitation of players. We may have a a psychologist that's focused on culture within the team dynamic. Mm. So that's where I think, you know, the balance will develop in the next sort of phase of, of high performance. Do you see then sometimes the, the the really expert master coaches kind of have all of those skills? I think they always have had. You know, if you look at people like um, Shankly and, and Brian Clough and, and Alex Ferguson, you know, I think Alex Ferguson's obviously, you know, you sort of think of the hairdryer treatment, you know, all the time. But actually, when you get to hear... I interviewed him at a conference a few years ago and you hear some of the stories from, you know, the personal letters that he wrote to people, you know, the, the how he got to know their families and their partners. He knew that was a critical part of it, you know, ahead of the time, really. And I think if you want short term results, you can, you know, measure people and smash people and give them short term financial rewards. But I think if you're going to sustain high performance for a long period of time, then the mindset, the culture you know, the emotional part of sport is definitely something that's untapped at the moment. Mm. One of the things I always noticed about Alex Ferguson was that although, he, you know, he, he was known for that hairdryer stuff, we never saw it. And, and front, front facing in interviews, he'd never, he'd never be blaming players. Um, and one of the conversations he had in podcast, I think it was with Nasser Hussein talking about his relationship with Darren Goff, who was, you know, the star player, but he was... He had, you know, he, he had other co- coaches and captains had found him hard to manage. Where did you draw a line on having those standards, but then having those exceptional athletes that do things a little bit differently, but still get, you know, alter- that they could be the difference between winning and losing? Yeah, well, uh, you know, as you know, um, one of the interview insights in that particular um, episode was with Shane Warne. Um, and I've been very lucky to work with Warney on a number of occasions, mostly in the Indian Premier League. And, you know, in, in his insight, when I asked him about how to manage Mavericks, he sort of says, you know, don't give me all that team crap about no one's bigger than the team. You know, you know, I'm the man, you know, I'm going to win the game for you. So so treat me with a bit of uh, special treatment. And I think there's something in that, you know, having interviewed some top execs and and lots of top coaches for our Sporting Edge content, you know, there seems to be this sense that, you know, if you're a peak performer, if you are the top performer, you get special treatment and your performance buys you flexibility and freedom. So I remember back in my early playing days, I played at North Hants with Alan Lamb was the captain and Kirtley Ambrose was the six foot eight West Indian fast bowler. Now, you know, all the young bucks, we were there in our, you know, new lycra shorts running around, you know, doing 
ladders and sort of press-ups and all this sort of stuff. There's absolutely no way that cool as a cucumber, Curtly Ambrose was going to start doing squat thrusts before the, the morning's game. So we'd get there at nine and warm up till half ten. Curtly rocked up at quarter past ten, read the papers, had a cup of tea, and then bowled at 95 miles an hour and horrified the opposition, which we all loved. So, you know, he had that flexibility that he didn't really do warm-ups. He was a top international cricketer. He knew how to warm his body up, and that was pretty much it. So that's one example. You know, Warney's point about, you know, make me feel a little bit special. It could be letting them know what the team is or asking about the conditions or asking about selection or, you know, what what we think of, of the sort of strategy or recruitment. You know, get them involved in a, some some kind of help helping you to shape the strategy and the culture. I think that's really critical. But then at the other end of the spectrum, I think there are non-negotiables and there are those sort of sacred rules that, interestingly for Warney, we left one player behind at the, a very famous player actually, behind at the hotel uh, because he was three minutes late paying his bill one morning and the bus left and Warney, who's one of the biggest mavericks ever, said, no, non-negotiable, the bus leaves at nine, we've gone. It'd all been agreed beforehand. All agreed and it was a rickshaw to the stadium for... Yeah, said superstar, and, and it um, made quite a big point. I bet, I bet. And was that all agreed? Did the did the players know that the result of turning up late was the buses going? Well, I think it had been on a flip chart at some point, but they definitely were clear after seeing the guy <laughs> try and run up the hotel sort of driveway. But yeah, again, I think you, you know you make your plans and your intentions clear from the start, and then all of these stories that are above the line or below the line reinforce your culture. Mm. Um, you know, we interviewed one of the leaders at Sandhurst. I've been lucky to do some leadership development work there. And and um, Lucy Giles spoke about, um, you know, the, the, the sort of standard you walk past or the one you allow. She was talking about litter and things around the courtyards yeah. at Sandhurst. You know, and if she's a senior leader and she walks past it, she's basically saying that's acceptable and other people will see it. So I think We've got to have that tight feedback loop that when we see something that crosses our standards, either for good, you know, spot somebody doing something bad, but equally spot somebody doing something good and tell them straight away. We've got a a fairly active dog that's sleeping at the moment in the background. But, you know, we had a dog trainer and dog behaviorist giving us some insight. And he said, unless you reward your dog within two seconds of them doing it, they'll forget what it was and they won't be able to link, you know, the bit of sausage to the nice sit. And I thought "Hmm, there's something in that. You know, this idea of rewarding somebody 11 and a half months later at their performance appraisal is probably a bit outdated. So I think if we see people do good stuff, then we should get on it. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, did that guy, just going back to the rickshaw, how did he play? Did he do all right in that game? Did really well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kept him on his toes. But I, I think, you know, the other point about the Mavericks, which I'm, again, I'm fascinated by, is... We tend to look at people and it's almost like the the sort of Manhattan skyline. You know, you sort of see their sales performance if you're in a business environment or you see their run scored in a cricket environment. This person's 20% higher or 30% higher on the bar chart. You know, don't don't annoy them. They're, they are winning games for us. But what we tend not to see is when we've got somebody that is performing incredibly well, but becoming more toxic in the culture, we tend to not see the erosion of 3%, 6%, 5%, 8% off other people's game mm. because they're wasting so much mental energy or they're getting pulled away to, you know, the negativity that surrounds this person. And that's not to mention the management time talking about this particular person. 
So, so I think what we tend to see is the upside of the Maverick and see that they are outstanding performers. So we tolerate a lot. But I think, again, if we start to look below the waterline and say, well, what's the negative consequence of this behavior? Yes, we're getting performance uplift, but we're actually eroding the principles of the team. We're eroding the confidence of some of the people around them. And that could be a bigger cost than the gain we're getting. With those players, I often think as coaches, one of the reasons that the play, the players, the Mavericks don't get coached as well as they could do and managed as well is there's a bit of ego from the coaches that ultimately maybe we know those Mavericks perhaps know a little more than we do about the sport that, that we're in. Yeah, and again, I think we've moved out of an era where the... Um you know, the the manager is the all-controlling one. I think Alex Ferguson himself spoke about, you know, the manager's got to be in control at all times. And I'm not sure I agree with that now, certainly in the current context, because I think we've got players now that are such global icons. You know, you look at the the impact that Ronaldo has wherever he goes with shirt sponsorship, you know, that old saying, you're not bigger than the team. Well, actually, you know... <laughs> I think it might be, you know, in terms of commercial value to the club. So we've got to be very careful about how we play that power card. And I actually think the other way, I think, you know, that the leader that shows humility and curiosity about what goes on inside the mind. I mean, for me to spend time, you know, six years with Shane Warne was incredible. You know, just hearing how he thinks about leg spin bowling, how he makes decisions. I've never met anyone who commits to his skills as much as him and I've met some incredible people and just his the way he thinks about bowling is completely different to anything that I've seen in the way it's coached here we tend to be coached to be quite mechanical and think about where is your wrist and where is your elbow and where is your hip at this point in the action Shane Warner was just where do I want the batsman how am I going to get the batsman out where, where do I want him to try and hit it right I've got to bowl a ball with this shape that lands in this spot it's all about his focus on the other end of the pitch whereas we focus on the mechanics of delivery which is at our end of the pitch and I just found that fascinating so he would run up and try and bowl the best ball he's ever bowled at every ball I think there's probably a mindset and an aggression with it and a you know again Warney's story is fascinating you know he was uh, Aussie rules player, incredibly gifted and talented, told he was going to be the next big thing, had his opportunity. He was ill when he played in this massive game. The old veterans stuffed him, you know, with a few old tricks and he got humiliated, got dropped, didn't come back basically. And somebody said to him, you're not, you're not sort of cut out to be a professional athlete and how wrong they were. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of elite performers need that spark and that fire to go through the adversity you need to become excellent at something you know we we tend to think that there's this shortcut to this this look at this you know nine-year-old virtuoso on the piano isn't he lucky and gifted his parents were brilliant musicians no he's actually you know or she they've been on that piano for fifty thousand hours and that's all they've done and they've they've, they've sort of got this insatiable desire to improve day on day probably an obsession in some way and that's how they've improved. So I think, um, yeah, the, the elite performers have often got a, a fear of failure or something that, that, you know, drives them to the extent that makes them put in the work and prove people wrong. And that's, we, we see the sort of output of that. We see them on the podium, but there's not many people that could, you know, we, we might hear a, a swimmer, oh, she's so gifted as a swimmer. Well, she is, but she's also been getting up at 4.30 for the last nine years 
you know, smashing the ice off the parents' car and getting to the training centre before we all went to school. So is that a gift or is that determination and discipline? Because I think those are attributes that we rarely, they're not sexy enough, I don't think, in our world. But really important. And and when you talk about those athletes that have had those practice skills for occasionally still, even with someone that's got that, that third stage of autonomy and bomb-proof skills, occasionally they let them, let them down. And um, some of the work you do is around performance routines. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about performance routines and perhaps how they could use them either as an individual or for the people they're working alongside or coaching? Yeah, I guess it comes to, you know, sport and and performance. You know, if you're speaking at a conference, it's a high stakes environment. If you're going out to bat in a one day cricket match or play international rugby, it's high stakes. Um, It's volatile, it's unpredictable. And those things are stressors for us because we like to have as much under control as we can. So I think although we can't control um, the outcome, what we can control is the process and the setup for our peak performance so you know you find things a few days before that people are eating particular things in in sort of to build a bit of um, continuity and familiarity Uh, you know they put their kit on in the same way to to build build that 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 tends to be more the sort of comfort and superstition end of it but that's all still part of preparation and then I think specifically when we talk about pre-shot routines um, you know, one way to think of it may be uh, as, as a golfer, for example, you imagine that instead of just you've just hit the ball into the trees, you, you're, you know, Mr. Angry, you, you're sort of kicking the turf all the way down the fairway. Uh, and then you see your ball lying there amongst the pine needles. Um, and you could quite easily take that contamination from the last shot and all the emotion and frustration You've started to think about what the leaderboard looks like and what the press are going to say the next day. So you've fast forwarded already. And then there's that little ball that seems to be glowing red and deserves smacking somewhere. And and you then make the fatal mistake of playing a second bad shot in a row. So I think what a performance routine acts as a breaker, certainly in the the sort of stop-start games like tennis or cricket or golf, Uh, not so much in the continuous sports like rugby and football, but it still can be done. But these breaks are imagining, for example, that you've got two phases of play for each shot. You've got your um, strategic thinking. So imagine placing now, you can visualize in this pine forest, you're on the edge of the fairway, your ball's glowing white hot in the middle there. And you now place a, a sort of a visual hula hoop around it, sort of a meter in diameter. And you think, right, I'm not going to stand in there until I'm emotionally calm, until I've picked the club until I've picked the shape of shot and the the sort of strength of shot that I'm going to use. I'm going to pick the spot that I want it to land on, my landing point, and I'm going to get myself into that routine. So the first part of your routine is almost like a car wash calming you down from the previous angry moment. You've then got the strategic thinking in that sort of strategic office outside the hitting zone. Um, it's a seven iron, it's three quarter shot, it's a bit left to right. I'm aiming at that spot there where the sunlight's coming through the trees on the fairway. Are you sure? Yeah, absolutely sure. Right, now count your feet in and deep breath. So we don't want any thinking when we go into our instinct room, which is where we play our best sport. So the thinking's been done in the strategy room outside the hula hoop. I now switch off and say, I grip my uh, club and I say, are you sure? Seven iron, three quarter shot. Yep, sure. And then I say, okay, I grab my club really hard and say, clear. 
and then I go one, two, as my left and right foot steps next to the ball. I have a quick look at the landing spot where the sunlight is. I take a big deep breath in to relax my shoulders, and then I just hit the ball. There's no talking, there's no doubt, there's no anger, there's no frustration. But what I've done is I've taken a game of golf that lasts four hours, a bit longer if it's me, um, and actually the time we play golf is 22 minutes. So the time I am next to a ball and hitting a ball is 22 minutes. So I need something to turn me off from the last shot or the chat I've had with a mate down the fairway or the negative voice that's in my head about the papers tomorrow. And then I need to focus on the next shot. It's the only one that matters, the next shot, the next ball, the next delivery, the next serve. I zone myself in, usually using breathing routines or counting techniques because our brain works best when it's empty and it's not thinking. Now, most coaches would say, empty your brain, just don't think anything. But it's absolutely impossible under pressure to not think anything. So actually, the way I'd phrase it is that our brain is best when it's empty, like a dustbin, like a sort of a, you know, one of those metal waste bins. But actually, what the routine does is it creates a lid over the top. So the, the bin remains empty, but then this reinforced routine, this sheet of metal that we've created over the top of the bin stops the ship from flying in, the distractions, the pain, my back's stiff, I've missed this shot before, I've never get runs on this pitch, you know, I I never kick well when it's this windy, all of that negative chatter that's your brain trying to keep you safe, we want to walk into that fear, we want to walk into that high performance space, but we need a blocker. And that's what the routine does. It brings structure, it brings self-talk, it brings physical composure through some kind of breathing anchors. And those done in sequence that feels very natural and is a learnt skill like anything else creates that stable, consistent, calm, instinctive platform for you to see what your next shot looks like. And then the process starts again. So, you know, for me, elite sport... Uh, you know, speaking at conferences, doing anything under pressure is a battle against yourself. And I'm just amazed that we don't spend more time looking at the developing the winning mindset as much as we try to develop the perfect stance and grip and backlift. And for for some people listening to this, they won't they won't be playing professional sport. They might not be playing sport, but they will want to they want to be a success and they'll have smaller battles and those smaller battles might be just starting your day well um, with positive thoughts. Um, how, how, do you, how would you help someone with that? And why is it important, do you think, for those routines, those habits? Well, again, you've got a volatile day that could go. I, I always think, you know, I talk a lot about the winning mindset with our programs and digital content at Sporting Edge. But, you know, I think... Winning could be, you know, pressure to me is something that we all face, whether you're an entrepreneur trying to pitch to investors for your business, you're a CEO speaking about the share price, or you're a single mum, you know, trying to take your baby out for the first time. I think those are all pressure moments. So to me, structuring your day is, is really important because the day's volatile, the day can unwind and unravel and you want to have a, a good day. There's almost two versions of ourselves each day, I think. And this is where this sort of winning mindset comes in. One of me, you know, presses snooze on the alarm, uh, eats a massive fry up, doesn't exercise, checks my email and social media for an hour and a half and get, you know, drift away. And then suddenly decide the morning's nearly gone 
and I haven't really done a huge amount and have regret and get frustrated through the rest of the day. The other person has a clear um, you know, view, has a, an alarm clock. You leave your alarm clock over the other side of the bedroom in your running shoes, stick your running gear on because you're up already. You may as well go out and do a lap around the block, have a walk, have a run. It's oxygenated your brain. You feel more energetic. You get all that natural endorphin uplift. You sort of switch off your social media for a period, do some deep sort of cognitive work. And, uh, uh, you know, and that, that really helps to set up your day. So whatever performance you, you're looking to do, I think building a routine that, that brings structure and helps to deliver you into your best uh, mindset for performance, I think is really, really important. So that example that you gave about the alarm going off and making sure that perhaps your alarm's so far away that you've got to get out of bed. That's, a, I guess, a principle that, that listeners could apply to all those habits that they're finding just tough to embed. Yeah, I think there's a great book um, called Atomic Habits, and it's basically the psychology of behavior change. And I think it's fascinating. And it's just looking at the triggers for our decisions and our habits. You know, our brain's built to automate as many things as we can. So we don't actually realize we're making decisions a lot of the time, but it's just being more conscious of that uh, decision making or that choice architecture, I think he phrases it as that, you know, the, the choices that we surround ourselves, we, we've got very little willpower in, in all honesty. So we're better off setting the environment up for success. So little things like, you know, if we order our food online and we're absolutely ravenous, then we're more likely to buy, you know, high craving, sugary, mm. sort of carb rich food. Um, if we have ice cold beers right at the front of the fridge, guess what? You're more likely to drink them. So stick them away in the garage and make the sort of friction of distance uh, remove your motivation to have a beer. So it's it's really starting to think about how you can set up your environment to, if you're working from home or your sort of choices around well-being. And that's why I always think for me, if I'm in a hotel I'll put my running shoes on the far side of the bedroom. So I actually have to get out of bed. I have to, you know, walk past my running kit and and take my phone out of my shoes. And that is enough guilt for me to say, you know, it's early enough because you put your alarm on intentionally. Just stick this stuff on and get out the door. And it's almost not a choice. So I think you have to, when your motivation is high, which my intentions are good the night before, I mm. use high motivation to set the architecture of the choice. And then when my motivation is low, which is when I've just crawled out of the duvet, the last thing I want to do is run, but the decision's already been made for me. So it's easy then. So nice. that's a nice little, uh, you know, bit that I picked up. There's a guy called um, BJ Fogg, a professor from, uh, I don't know if it's Harvard or Stanford, but he's done a lot around habits and also James Clear's books are a brilliant one. And I guess aligned a little bit to habits and people either getting into not applying them or... Um, getting into bad habits anxiety can also be something that sportsmen might suffer either in very visual terms like a, the yips for example or uh, for anybody there that, that's listening that, that either suffers in sporting terms the anxiety pre-competition something as a youngster I really struggled I'd throw up before every 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 race but I know some people get anxious just in general terms now at the moment with everything that's going on. Have you got any tips or tools that you you would suggest that people can start to help alleviate or reduce anxiety? Yeah, I mean, it's a really difficult one. I mean, I was, uh, you know, people would say I had a good career playing international cricket, but there were moments for me that were incredibly intense in terms of anxiety. I 
you know, we, I was playing a game in front of 120,000 people in India. I'd bowled at Sachin Tendulkar and, and I felt okay. I couldn't really feel my hand, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I got through that. And all I wanted the first do, ball to do was land. And then after that happened, I actually got into the competition and felt quite good. Um, when I went out to bat, I ran out Freddie Flintoff and then played a terrible shot. I was the only one in the middle of that stadium with 120,000 people. And the voice in my own head was way darker and louder than, than anything the crowd could have shouted. And I think we self-sabotage a lot, don't we? And, you know, looking back at some of the research I've done with the people we've interviewed at Sporting Edge, and, and I think our brain was built for safety. We were built as hunter-gatherers to have these occasional spikes of adrenaline and cortisol to, to get us into these fight-and-flight responses very quickly. The problem for us now is that you know, we, we, our brain hasn't had an upgrade. It's not like an iPhone. So we still get the same anxiety response, but it tends to be all around us. It's the judgment of others. It's the emails. It's the, you know, comparison to others. It's what people are going to say tomorrow. It's the rumors. And and we're sort of almost swimming in this uh, swamp of anxiety a lot. So I think, I think it's trying to understand that your brain wants you to play it safe all the time. Uh, and to be a high performer or to go and do something takes courage and focus and commitment. And you shouldn't be too hard on yourself for that. But actually, when we look back, the things that we're most proud of at whatever level are the things where we've actually fronted up and, and been brave and, and, and gone for it. And I think those are the biggest regrets for me through my sporting career and business career. It's the times when you didn't really have that courage to step forward because I was sort of emotionally hijacked by what people might think and, and you know, didn't didn't back myself. Yeah, that that's sort of at a philosophical level. And then I think the key is to surround yourself with people that have got the skills that you're worried about being exposed under pressure. So if you've got brilliant analytical people or financial people in your business and you're doing some kind of presentation, the fact that they can stand up alongside you or in a team environment, you know, we've got these guys here, everything's going to be okay. That's the power of teamwork. And that's why, you know, when, when we get under pressure ourselves, we'll tend to retreat and become more insular. And I think that's one of the challenges with the pandemic. You know, we need to stay connected stay you know leveraging our own strengths and the collective strengths in our team um, you know so that's another thing and then I think as well those in the moment reframing techniques of um, you know one of the American psychologists and coaches talked about everyone wants to win you know we're starting to think about what the scoreboard's going to look like what the prize money looks like well, actually, that that takes us away from the moment so we've got to scale back and say if we want to win w i n What's important now? What's important next? So I've worked with rugby players and, and footballers in these sort of open flowing sports about what's my next job? Where's the ball? What position do I need to be in? And it takes our brain away from thinking about what the media might be saying and actually what's next? What, what, are, what, what are we doing in the next minute to win the next minute? And if I can win the next minute, if I can control myself as the person's reading my name out to speak at the conference and I walk slowly up to the lectern and I take a deep breath, then that's winning each of those moments to deliver me to the lectern in a comfortable, calm state. If I panic and rush and go up there in a, in a you know blur, then I'm more likely to fumble those first few words and, and make a mistake, which then, you know, gets even worse. So I think that's the key just to break things down, try and stay in the present and those counting techniques, those 
reframing your thinking, those breathing techniques are critical to bring us back in the moment because when we panic, we're either reflecting back on a humiliating experience of the past or we're starting to catastrophize and predict a horrifying consequence of you know what we're about to do mm. and and both of those are irrelevant because we haven't done it yet mm. um so i think i take a lot of pride uh you know for myself and and i think other people do when we stay calm in the moment and just deliver our skill and if it's not good enough i think we can live with that but if we self sabotage and you know don't don't think straight or don't speak properly because we are panicking that that's almost a, a bigger crime for me so another reason why getting to understand our mindset and, and the sort of triggers of, of our emotions is really critical. And would you also add to that the ability to speak to other people and gain insight from outside what you're thinking? Yeah, I think, again, one of the challenges with the pandemic is that we've been stuck not only in our own houses, but in our own heads. And I think we all need that challenge and that different reference point to reframe our thinking because you know when we when we tend to think through a particular scenario I've got to play against a fast bowler at the weekend I've got to deliver a presentation at work we have that same narrative and that same loop it's like we tell the same story over and over it's always the same seven stages and it always follows the same you know it always ends up in a swamp mm. uh, whereas if somebody said oh um, say we're sitting having a coffee with a friend or we're with an executive coach or we've got a psychologist in our sports team or whatever they might say what other options did you have at that point and you might say don't ruin my story I haven't got to the you know climax yet I know how this one ends I want to tell you how it ends but when they ask that question what other options were there you might say oh maybe I didn't need to punch that person or maybe maybe I didn't need to throw that ball at that particular time okay what else could you have done well I could have taken a deep breath and taken a moment or I could have not sent that email at 11 o'clock at night to mm. my boss. Okay, well, what would have happened if you'd waited till the morning? Well, I'd have been a bit more reflective and probably not have sent it. Oh, and then what would have happened? And, and they take you down a different path in your story. And I just think having that ability to talk to mates, you know, great listeners, coaches, psychologists, you know, different support networks is absolutely critical to getting out of your own head because no one forces those voices into your head. It's it's often uh, it's our often often our fears that are just echoing around, and they need debating. I always think it's a bit like a a sort of prosecution in a courtroom. You know, you've got the negative voice saying you deserve to go to prison, you're a failure, and there's no defence there. So it's a pretty one sided courtroom. You know, it's quite nice if somebody stood up and said, "Well, hang on a minute, I'm not that rubbish. I've done this and I've done that and I've achieved this and I did quite well last week." And then the judge decides because it's a fair sort of uh, a fair balanced inquiry. Whereas when we just use that negative voice in our own head, then I think things can pretty spiral pretty quickly. Often when I finish these chats, you're left with some new thoughts or something that reminded you of something within your own work. Much of what I do in teams and organizations is to provide nudges in helping them achieve their best versions. And with Jeremy, I can see that he does that on a number of levels. By combining his experience and his expert knowledge, he can provide that set of educated eyes that can help teams perform better and see solutions for issues that will always pop up. 
the social chemistry he really understands and can really make a difference. Yet again, a real expert in his field talks about how the physical preparation of athletes is still given a much higher weighting and resources to the cultural and psychological side, but both are vital to attend to and for helping everyone be at their best consistently beyond the short term. I loved his stories that I'm sure will have provided you all with some great takeaways and he has a whole heap more of those on his own podcast, Inside the Mind of Champions, as well as in the various services and fantastic resources he supplies through his company's website, Sporting Edge. All the details to these and more will be found in the show notes that are available at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast as well as links to all the previous shows from this series and the first on the usual platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. This has been the Ben Ryan Podcast. Thanks for listening.